Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Making Ideas Matter, Representative Dwight Evans. Representative Dwight Evans, author of Making Ideas Matter, My Life as a Policy Entrepreneur. What's a policy entrepreneur? <laughs> well, a policy entrepreneur is someone who's trying to find solutions to problems, uh, experimenting, um, reading a lot, talking to a lot of people, and just trying to figure out, is there a solution to this particular problem? And I'd like to believe throughout my career, I've always tried to figure out, to have ideas to address the various problems that we have today. Maybe education, economic development, uh, environmental issues, uh, crime issues, things of that nature. So I've always tried to figure out, is there an idea that can address the problem that we have? Is that unusual in your business? I think it is. Uh, I think sometime uh, we, in politics, lose the focus about the premise of the idea. I think sometimes we get caught up into uh, what I consider the side shows, um, how much money a person raises in a campaign, what are their polling results. Uh, those are things that I think that sometimes people get caught up in and they forget to me that the basis of it all is an idea. Um, when you run for public office, when you, if you're fortunate enough to get elected, that you really try to figure out some way to come up with an idea to address a problem. And I think that's very important because I think that the focus has so much been uh, from the standpoint of, well, how much money does a person raise in a campaign and what are their polling numbers? So when you look at how much money they raise and what are their polling numbers, then in some degree people try to measure people by the outcome of those rather than what kind of ideas do they have about addressing these issues? Because when you run for public office, I like to think you run for public office because you really believe you have an idea that can address the problems that we face. Is it harder to get people's uh, attention when you want to talk about ideas as opposed to a kind of a 30-second campaign ad? No question. It's very difficult. Uh, it's very difficult for a lot of different reasons. Uh, first and foremost, um, in terms of getting people's attention span, and because of the level of cynicism that has been driven about politics in general. You know, people have a very cynical attitude about not just what takes place in Harrisburg, but sometime in Washington, D.C. And when you bring that together, anybody who's trying to punch through to communicate with people, you have a difficult time in terms of that idea getting through. And sometimes, generally, people think that, what difference are you going to be able to make? You know, are you really sincere? Are you genuine in trying to make a difference? So the gist of what I tried to do through this book was to say ideas do make a difference. I give some examples of different ideas that I believe have made a difference, not just in the state, but in the country. And I think it's important to drive that concept about the idea and the connection it has to making a difference in people's lives. 
When did you start getting interested in politics? Um, when I was in my early 20s, um, got, was involved in the neighborhood, in the community, uh, started from the bottom up. And there were a lot of people who affected my thinking. Reverend Leon Sullivan, who started something called OIC, which went nationally and internationally affected. Opportunities Linda, Industrial Opportunity Industrial Center, uh, Center right, uh, Reverend Sullivan. Um, um, Lyndon Johnson. Um, and you say he's your political hero. He's a political hero because he, he, he took on issues. I mean, when you talk about the war on poverty, uh, the civil rights bill, the voting rights bill, you talk about those are ideas that have made a difference in people's lives. The Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, um, uh, health care. I mean, you, know, you hear the president talk about health care today, but Lyndon Johnson was in the forefront of making a difference. And here was a person who was from the South, didn't start out the way he ultimately became president, but he had ideas that made a difference in people's lives. He was a master of the Senate. He understood the political process extremely well and how to make things together. So he brought together policy and politics to, give an out, to make an outcome in people's lives. Can you explain to people who are watching from the outside how that works in Harrisburg? Like if you have an idea and you want to get it through, what you have to go through to get it done? Well, it really depends. Sometimes it depends on which party is in the majority, which is one factor. The other factor is depending on the governor, which is another factor. And it depends on what tools you learn to use in your legislative box. That's what I learned to do. Uh, when I was in the majority, uh, being the majority chair of the Appropriation Committee, you kind of control the agenda to move things through. Uh, when you're in the minority, which means politically you do not control the agenda, then you have to figure out other ways. And other ways that I use sometime was, uh, I use communications, use the press, uh, talk to people in the community uh, in terms of trying to generate support. And then I formed alliances. Um, with other uh, elected officials, maybe Republican or Democrat, rural, urban. I figure out how we can form alliance. Uh, and I thought that was important because you can't do anything by yourself. You really need to understand if you're in the legislative process, you really need to form alliances in order to make things happen. You gotta kinda be a person that even if people sometimes you don't like, <laughs> you gotta figure out, well, how do I get to 102 votes? Because you got to remember your mission. Your mission starts out with the element is that we take an oath. That oath is uphold the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of Pennsylvania. And those oaths, to me, are something that should be very sacred, that you understand that. Once you understand the oath, that sets the framework. When you set the framework, the question is, if you see a problem, can you look at an idea? Now, all ideas did not originate with me. There were ideas that originate with others but you can try to figure out how you form that alliance with other ideas that you have with other people and figure out how you address those problems. Can you give an example of, of something you wanted to get done as maybe when you were in the minority party and you had to bring people in on both sides of the aisle and, and what you had to do to get that done? The thing that I'm probably most excited about, one of the things that I'm most excited about was that uh, we needed to uh, deal with the issue about change in education. Um, at that time, um, Governor Ridge uh, was the governor, uh, and the Republicans controlled the House and the Senate. And I knew something needed to be changed about education. I introduced a proposal, and the proposal was really, uh, you know, really potent in the sense of I wanted to decentralize education and put it in the hands of 
principals, teachers, and parents, and give the responsibility to where the decisions should be made at the level of principals, teachers, and parents, and kids. That's what I felt. So I introduced the proposal, and uh, it got a lot of attention. As a matter of fact, I got some people upset with me on the Democratic side and the teachers' union. Uh, but I was able to form an alliance with the speaker at that particular time and the governor, uh, and we came up with a proposal. Now, the governor proposed the idea of the charter schools. He proposed one particular proposal. I had another proposal. But we was able to come together, and the initiative in terms of charter schools, driven by Governor um, Ridge, and basically some ideas that I had about uh, what it was important. And you see in the book, I talk about uh, that I initiated and started a charter school called the West Oak Lane Charter School. It's been in existence for 16 years. It's meeting all of the standards, small class size, but the power is in the hands of the principal, uh, the teachers, and the kids. And it is a union uh, at West Oak Lane Charter School. That's just one example of making a change in education. Uh, I felt like the education system needed to change. And my general sense was not that you have bad people in the system. It is an old system, and it needed to change. And not blaming anybody, not blaming the teachers, the parents, or the kids. But we needed to deliver education differently than we have in the past. Yeah, you say in your book that in a lot of ways our schools are stuck in the 18th and 19th centuries. Correct. How, how did that happen and, and well, what think, do you do? I, th I, th I, think that, I think that basically happens because, look, we are a product of our environment. And, you know, most of us who may have gone to public schools, uh, it may have been appropriate when we were going to school at that particular time. The economy was different. So at that point, I don't think anybody thought there needed to be kind of change that take place in the system. We're in a different environment because of technology and globalization. The education system, which was designed at a certain time, needs to be different than what it is today. So that means we need to use technology differently, and globalization is another element in it. So I, I believe that in order to make that change, we have to change the way education was delivered. It was delivered in one way because of mainly an agriculture sort of period time, which you don't have that today. So that's why I said I wanted to change the system in a way that makes it meets the needs of the kids and the parents and not the adults. You tell a story in the book about how your mother falsified your yes, address to so you go to a better school. And that's what basically sort of affected my thinking. I mean, my mother wanted me to go to a, a, another school in a different neighborhood, and as a result of her wanting me to go to that particular school, she was practicing school choice at that particular time. I couldn't describe it because I didn't understand it. You know, you kind of go where your mother tells you you're supposed to go, and that's what she did. And, and when I went to that school, I saw there was a difference in the teaching that was taking place in the classroom. The expectation that the teacher uh, had of a person myself and all of the students, and I saw that was different than the school that I was in. But the element of choice was the idea that it was introduced to me when my mother manipulated the address in order for me to go to another school. So my sense was, I don't think that parents should be trapped in that kind of an environment, and only people who have money or power should have choice available to them. I believe that choice should be an element that is available to everybody. That's the greatest thing about Pennsylvania and America, is that choice should be something that's available to everyone and not choice just to those who have money or power. Now, and with the charter schools, has that made the overall 
public school system better, or does it just take the the children of the parents who care out of the public well, school? And what does it do to the? I think what it has behind? done basically it has changed the discussion about how we deliver education. There's no, there's no question there are some good charter schools and there's some not some good charter schools. And the same thing with the public school system. But what it has done is changed the discussion about how education is delivered. That's the most essential element. Education is written in our Constitution. Thorough and efficient is what we are to provide to the people of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And that is a very good idea. You think about it. That was a very good idea to think about free public education. First and foremost, is good for the students. Secondly, it's good for the democracy. When you think about the element of providing education, right, it promotes the aspect of democracy. You educate the citizens, they understand what's going on, and then you put them in a position where they can take advantage of the employment and the jobs that are available. So public education is one of those things that I would say is a great idea. The question is you need to tinker, change, because of the environment that we're operating in today. Nothing can remain the same. Things all must change. Were you a good student as a kid? I, don't, I think I was an average student. I don't think I did as well as I could have done or should have done. But basically, I did a lot of reading on the outside. You said you were I, an avid reader. Uh, love it. I mean, my, my mother, in a sense, is one who drove me to the idea about libraries. And as you know, libraries have been extremely important in terms of promoting the democracy. You know, you think about Carnegie Mellon Library. You think about money that was left behind. Libraries, in a sense, gave us a real standpoint of our history and understanding the essential aspects of it. So I thank my mother for who encouraged me to go take advantage of the library. So the library really augmented what was taking place for me in the school, uh, in the classroom. Did you take any kidding from your friends for spending so much time at the library? I did, but I didn't worry about that. I mean, I, I thought the thing that was most essential was what my mom was really, my grandmother was saying to me about, you know, you got to go to school. Uh, to make a difference in your life. And I think as a result of what they said to me, that was more essential than anything, you know. My mother's still alive, she's 80 years old, and uh, she's still got a lot of energy and she still hasn't changed from when I was a kid. She is, I'm one of five kids, uh, there's four boys and one girl. And uh, my sister, she teaches at a community college. My younger brother grad, came out of the military, 27 years in the military. Um, so all of my working, as you saw from the first chapter, I talked about the importance of work. Work is extremely essential. Uh, no matter what kind of job you have, it is something that we should all value. Now, unfortunately today, there's a growing gap in terms of jobs being available to people. Uh, can you describe the neighborhoods you grew up in? You grew up in a couple different neighborhoods. I grew up in, uh, first, in what you call North Central Philadelphia, which is in the heart of Philadelphia. Uh, neighborhood which was um, working class, blue collar, everybody had a job or they had access to a job. They worked in factories that was there around Gerard Avenue, around Lehigh Avenue. Connie Mack Baseball Stadium was in North Central Philadelphia, that's where Connie Mack Baseball Stadium was there. Um, Cecil Moore Avenue at that time it was called Columbia Avenue. Uh, first time coming in terms of supermarket, a lot of commerce took place along Columbia Avenue. And those avenues were very important. Bright Hope Baptist Church, uh, Congressman Gray um, was the minister. His father was the minister of that particular church. So those were the influences that I saw. Uh, Reverend Leon Sullivan, Zion Baptist Church. He was another influence on my life growing in North Central Philadelphia. Moved from North Central Philadelphia to Germantown. 
Germantown, predominantly white, um, when I moved to that particular community. And it's named just with a Germantown. Uh, Germantown High School, um, the owner of Comcast, uh, the original owner of Comcast went to Germantown High School. Bill Cosby went to Germantown. Lola Falana went to Germantown High School. Those are just some of the people who went to Germantown High School. Uh, Germantown, unfortunately, is closed down. Would have been 100 years old uh, this year. Uh, it would have been 100 years. So when you think about it, 100 years old that high school was. And that's why I said to you about the need to change the discussion around public education. When I went to school, the superintendent's daughter uh, went to uh, Germantown High School. Teachers had their kids in Germantown High School at that particular time. So that has changed, that era has changed. It's not the same. So the economy has changed, the education system has changed, and I believe that we needed an education system that could meet the needs of where we are today. So from North Philadelphia to Germantown, and then to West Oak Lane. Now where's uh, West Oak Lane? West Oak Lane is like in the northwest part of Philadelphia. Uh, it's it, it, back in the, the the 30s and 40s, more like a suburb, residential community. Uh, it borders uh, Montgomery County, uh, Sheltonham Avenue, Washington Lane. That's where it borders. Uh, basically, it was sort of like a rural suburban area. Uh, when Philadelphia was consolidated, like in 1854, um, West Oak Lane was like a suburb of Philadelphia. It was connected more towards Bucks County. Uh, and as a result, West Oak Lane, residential neighborhood, uh, commercial corridors, doesn't really have too many factories. Uh, and that's the neighborhood where my mother and father separated uh, that we moved to. Uh, my brothers and my sister, we moved there. That's where I went to junior high school, high school, uh, went to German High School, community college, and LaSalle University. Uh, those are the places uh, that I attended to from an education perspective. You have any teachers that really ignited your interest in learning? Yes, uh, Franny Burles, fifth grade teacher. Uh, if she was alive today, she could teach in the classroom today. She had 40 kids in the classroom. This was prior to unions. Uh, she was a fascinating teacher. She used to love my ears. That's why we tell people that was <laughs> Fanny Burles. She was a, I mean, she, she taught me a lot in terms about expectations, standards, raising the bar. She graduated from a African-American uh, college uh, in Virginia. And she came and she was that kind of person who really cared. Uh, she paid attention to every single kid in the classroom. She was there. Didn't make a lot of money, but she was more on a mission. Now, I know that era has changed from when Fran Fanny Burroughs was around, but Fanny Burroughs was a person who I really thought a great deal of. And when she was alive, I had to come to Harrisburg and we honored her on the House floor. Um, so Miss Burroughs is one of those people that effectuated to where I am today. You were a school teacher for a year. Yes. What was that experience like? Very exciting. A uh, gentleman by the name of Al Session. I started out as a substitute teacher and then got a long-term position. He was the one. He was looking for African-American males to be in the classroom. Where was the school? Uh, Leeds Junior High School. As a matter of fact, that's the same junior high school that my mother manipulated the address that I went to. So here I was teaching in that school. That's the school I graduated from, from ninth grade. It was a middle school. So ironic, I'm back there teaching in that classroom. And uh, learned a lot. Um, was working with young people, um, really the importance of what education meant. And it taught me a lot. Now, the only reason I didn't stay uh, at that particular time, because that's how I got introduced to the Urban League. 
uh, where I wound up working trying to place ex-offenders uh, in jobs. So it was that combination of the Urban League, the combination of working in the classroom, that ultimately led up to me looking at policy and politics. Because I wanted to kind of take ideas, right, on the micro level and expand them to the macro level. And I wanted to kind of be where the policy was being made. That was the groundwork that led for me to run for public office in, in January of 1980. I want to ask something else about, about uh, getting things done. You said when you were in college, was it when you were in college, you yes. were uh, an entrepreneur yes. staging events? Yeah, yeah I, stay, I learned, that? well, you know, as a young man, I was working all the time, but you had to make some extra money. I mean, I paid for college myself, got a few loans. I don't, I don't know how young people do it today, but, you know, I had to make some money. And there was a lot of uh, African-American entrepreneurs who owned bars, restaurants, things of that nature. And I formed alliances with some of them uh, and learned a lot. And basically, I was able to strike some deals where if I could bring an audience to them, they gave me a, a share of the ticket price. Uh, they provided the food and the alcohol. I brought the audience. I had a ticket network throughout the city of Philadelphia. How'd you set that up? Uh, I basically set up on relationships. People with the high school with me, people with the college with me, people who I knew. And that's why I said it fits very appropriate going into the legislature because you need to build the network. And I built the network. I was 17, 18, 19 years old, and I met people all over the city of Philadelphia. And that's where the entrepreneur aspect comes in, the connection between entrepreneur and policy. You might as well call me a person who was like, there, there was no task that I wasn't willing to do to make a difference. My grandfather, who was a chauffeur, for the city of Philadelphia was a self-made man. He was in the military. He was in the United States Navy. Uh, I watched him. I mean, he did all kinds of work, handiwork. My uncle, uh, two of my uncles who went to Central High School in the 50s, which is a very prominent uh, high school in the city of Philadelphia, uh, one got into computers, went to the University of Penn. Um, so basically watching them. The other uh, uncle I had was a police officer wound up becoming a police detective in the police department in the 60s. So one was a police detective, one uh, went, dealt with computers, grandfather was self-made, and grandmother was a seamstress. I mean, she was one of the best. She could make a dress that, that, that anybody would want to buy. She knew how to do those kinds of things. So it was that foundation that helped a great deal to me doing the kinds of things that I did in terms of ticket selling, organizing the neighborhood, making a difference in the neighborhood. It was that element that came together which laid the foundation to ultimately what I wound up doing in public policy. Well, when you were doing that, uh, the ticket selling and the entrepreneurial part, you didn't get the taste for business and wanting to get rich? Well, you know, I looked at Reverend Sullivan, uh, Whitney Young, who ran the Urban League, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, all of those individuals who I grew up, that I knew something had to make a difference in, those com in the communities. And I knew that, I, I talk a lot about the importance of citizenship, because people will talk about politicians, but where I believe it starts at is with people. This is our state and our country, and we need to be more vigilant about holding on to it. We're in a big debate about government, but who is government? except for the, but the people. The people are government. You know, there's no elected official 
who's gotten to their position without going through the people. I don't care if you're president of the United States or governor or state representative, you must go through the people. And I always understood that. I always understood it started with people to make a difference in our community. And when I tell the story about our neighborhood and organizing the block and getting people together, my emph emphasis was making a difference. Look, I was fortunate enough to graduate from college and I, I appreciate that honor. But I knew it was more to life than just graduating from college, buying a car, owning suits. I knew it was much more to life than making a difference. So I think what happened is it had a lot to do with the era I grew up in. I grew up in the era of seeing on TV the civil rights marches, uh, the violence that was occurring on TV, those kinds of things. And that's why I say the combination of, of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Lyndon Johnson, Kennedy, and all them, I would believe had some effect on me. 1964, uh, when um, Reverend Leon Sullivan was moving into a police station at 19th and Oxford. 19th and Oxford used to be an old police station. They shut it down. That's where OIC started. I was 10 years old when uh, OIC was started at that location. So you can envision as a 10-year-old kid, I'm observing the starting of OIC. And, and just think, at 19th and Oxford, that idea went national. That's why when, you talk about, when I talk about the title, Making Ideas Matter, here was an idea in 1964 that went across the nation, fed into President Johnson's war on poverty. It's rather ironic. 50 years later, we talk about poverty and the war on poverty, but in 1964, Reverend Leon Sullivan, right, was leading the effort. So as a kid growing up, it affected me in my own thinking. Is the emphasis different now? I mean, a, a young Dwight Evans growing up now, looking at who the heroes are and who the media focuses on, be, be drawn to a different area than you were? Uh, yes, I think it is. I think it is different today for a lot of different reasons. First, obviously, the media exposure is far much different than when I grew up. It, you know, it had like three stations. Uh, today, between the internet and Twitter and Instagram and all those other kinds of things, yeah, parents and kids are bombarded with so much information, right? Now, that's good and bad. It's good because it's important for people to have information, so I'm not against that. It's bad if you don't use some sort of discretion about when you expose to your kids about what these kids are being exposed to, what kind of information. And that, that gets down to the part about reading. If you're not reading and developing your own thought process, then you're going to be easily influenced by some elements that fundamentally uh, is not what you want your kids to be exposed to. These kids are easily exposed to all kinds of information. Again, I'm not knocking the exposure of information, but the question is using discretion about what kind of information is there and available to them. Well, all that information bombarding people and, and Twitter and little short snippets, how do you get kids to be willing to slow down and, and understand something in depth? Uh, I think, you know, look, the, the first teacher starts out with the parent. Parents, parents, look, I come from a single head of household. And I tell people in an ideal situation, it would be nice to have mom and dad together, but if that is not a reality, then you make the most of what you have. And I'm fortunate between my mother and my grandmother, my uncle's grand, they had standards. They had standards, they had values, 
You knew what the rules were. You knew what the expectations were, and they established that. So look, you're not going to be able to put the genie back in the bottle. You know, 140 characters is the way that it is today. It is what it is. Question is, how do you navigate in some way to get kids to understand and parents? Because kids watch their parents. My role models were the people I just described to you. My uncle, my grandfather, my grandmother, my grand that they were my role models. Not celebrities, not sports figures. I mean, all is nice, but the people who mostly impressed me. My uncle Harry uh, was a milkman uh, driving. I remember riding with him on a milk truck, uh, seeing him work. So it was the element of work that affected my situation. So you can imagine, I took that information, translated it over to public policy. That's the part where you see about the entrepreneur, the policy aspect, taking ideas, things that I saw taking place. In the book, I talk about the supermarket initiative, the Fresh Food Financing Initiative. Every neighborhood I grew up in, Cecil Moore Avenue, which was Columbia Avenue at the time, there was Best Market. When we moved to Germantown, to Germantown and Tabaka Street, there was Panchi Pride, there was a supermarket. Food Fair was a supermarket. When we moved to West Oak Lane, there was Shopping Bag, owned by an African-American by the name of Joe Johnson. So in each one of those neighborhoods, I saw the element of what a supermarket meant to that community. It's not an accident in that, that chapter where I talked about leading the effort on the Fresh Food Financing Initiative that I took something from a micro perspective and took it to a macro perspective. And then I was fortunate enough to introduce the idea to someone in the White House, and then the First Lady took it as a part of her Let's Move movement. Um, now we're having this big debate about healthy environments. Well, it fit perfectly with the President talking about health care on one hand and food, because my theory is a simple theory. Food is medicine, and food is extremely essential to it, what takes place in communities. So I was able to introduce that idea through public policy. And as a result, Harvard picked up on it. Uh, and what does CDC. it do? Well, basically the idea was about putting supermarkets in underserved areas, using initiative, using grant initiative to entice operators to put supermarkets in areas that there was no supermarkets in. Uh, so you can use grants, you can use tax credits, that's a policy initiative. It was only set up for a three-year term. And the purpose was I wanted to effectuate the marketplace, to drive the market to create the supermarkets. And as a result of that $30 million that we started out with, uh, it wound up springing to $146 million. And now over a billion dollars in the entire nation has been invested in that, that idea about supermarkets, and it feeds into supermarkets, corner stores, uh, farmers markets, all of those elements, because it gets down to the question around health, healthy communities, obesity, things of that nature. Because when I was a kid growing up, um, you didn't see the level of obesity that you see today. 30, 40 years ago, McDonald's, well, 40, 50 years ago, wasn't really around. But now with the uh, aspect of fast food uh, just about everywhere, a lot of it gets back to the discretion that you, you use in your thinking. When did you start looking around at elected officials and think, I could do that? Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Bill Ewing. He was, a, uh, he was head of a group called the East Mount Area uh, Organization. 
Uh, and he was like, an, he was an advocate. He ran for state senate. I started working for him in 1978 uh, as a block captain coming out of West Oak Lane, the 10th Ward. He lost his election. There were some people who said to me that, well, you know, he did it, you can do it. And uh, I remember uh, going to my boss at that time at the um, Urban League, his name was Bob Sorrell, and said, look, uh, can I get a leave of absence? He told me no. I said to him, well, I'm, I'm going to quit this job. I says, you know, at the end of the day, give me all my vacation time and everything. I am uh, uh, 25 years old, uh, working for the Urban League, decent job, making $19, $19,500 a year at that time. Um, you know, my mother thought I was crazy. She says to me, boy, uh, you go to college, you're working hard. Why would you want to do something like this? I said, Mom, I want to make a difference. Uh, this is what you told me. This is what others say. This is what I want to do. So I quit the job. I ran in a race where there was four people in the race. I was one of uh, three African Americans, and there were two, it was five people and two non-African Americans. I knocked on 5,000 doors. I went to every neighborhood. I talked to the people. The kind of stuff that they talk about, the research and data, well, uh, I went to so many doors, people said, if you keep knocking on my door, I'm not going to vote for you. Uh, I won that race by 4,000 votes. I beat the incumbent uh, in 1980. So and that was for state representative. That was for state representative. That's the first time I had run for public office. And I was fortunate enough to win a time. But what affected me at that time, as I said to you, there was Bill Ewing, a gentleman named Charlie Bowser ran for mayor. Um, um, so seeing Charlie Bowser ran for mayor in 1975, Hardy Williams, who was a state senator, who's a state rep that ran for mayor in 1971. Hardy Williams and Charlie Bowser, for me, was like Jesse Jackson and Barack Obama for the generation today. So when I saw people like Hardy Williams, and there was a gentleman by the name of Dave Richardson, who got elected when he was 24, uh, right next to me, he got elected in 1972. So he got elected, Hardy Williams got elected in 1969. Um, and John White Jr. got elected like in 1976. So seeing those people around me affected my thinking in terms of being active in the political process. It was all those elements. Why did you decide to run for the state house instead of, say, city council? And, well, and I almost left the state house. I mean, because when I first came to the state house, what I wasn't used to is the level of partisanship. Uh, it had gotten to a point, I remember a chairman of a committee I don't think he's no longer around. Name was Lee Tadanio. And I remember he used to say, you know, you, you Democrats are not in charge. We're in charge. It was so hostile. I almost ran for city council. That. I ran for the state because, because I was working at the Urban League and I, was, I wound up becoming director of the program they had. I had an idea about trying to place people in employment. And uh, I knew that we had the people in the city, but the jobs was growing in the suburbs. As a matter of fact, I presented a proposal to former uh, Senator John Hines, who you know, who was United States Senator of Pennsylvania, the late John Hines. And what I, what I did is I was working hands-on with these policies, but I felt like if I wanted to affect the policies, that I needed to be at the state level. Uh, and that's kind of what drove me to look at the state, where all of the action, you know, as you heard, states are like laboratories of democracy. Well... That's kind of where I felt like where I needed to do things. I wanted to be really honed in on policy. I wanted to make a difference in the community. And the position of legislator, I felt, was the best place to go. 
Well, you say in your book that after three decades in Harrisburg, I can say without reservation that more people were antagonistic with me because I was a Philadelphian than because I was an African-American. Correct. Uh, when you got to Harrisburg, <laughs> were you kind of surprised at the, the statewide perception of Philadelphia, the relationship? I was a little disappointed. Um, you know, look, it started in Philadelphia. You know, right? It started in Philadelphia. People think about it from a historical perspective. I mean, Benjamin Franklin uh, was a very significant person, uh, not just for Pennsylvania, but for this entire country. I could not understand the level of antagonism towards the city of Philadelphia because of people's biases and prejudice. But I always took an attitude was that was not my problem. My problem is I got elected just like you got elected. We have a responsibility to focus on the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And Philadelphia is one county of 67 counties. So I never understood the, the antagonism. Now, I know there's a lot of politics and race and class, but that was never my issue. I never let that impede me. The person who helped me a lot with that was Kay Lee Irvis, who, as you know, was Speaker of the House. And he was in the leadership in 1958. I was, I was born in 1954, and Kay Lee Irvis, as an African-American, was in leadership in 1958. So I learned a lot from observing him. And what he basically said to me was about patience. That's what he said. Now, you imagine telling a 25, 26 years old person about patience. And I admit to you, it took me some time to understand about what he was talking about. But at the end of the day, what it really came down to, in my view, was that these things will change. And I learned a lot from Kay Lee Irvers about the element of patience and change. And, you know, he became speaker in the 1970s, the first African-American speaker of the Pennsylvania House and one of the first in the nation. And he was really a role model for me. He's the one who put me on the appropriation committee uh, that saved me from running for city council. Because I went to him, I said, look, if I'm going to stay here, I need to be where some things are happening and I can make a difference. And that was the Appropriation Committee. But that ties connected back to the question you asked me about the entrepreneurship. I knew that money drove policy. And look, you didn't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that you could get people's attention uh, if you were sitting where the purse strings were. And as you look back, you know, uh, Benjamin Franklin was the first one to do what we would call our cap or WAM program, you know, redevelopment assistance or the legislative walk around program. He did it with the Pennsylvania uh, Hospital. 2,000 pounds is what Ben Franklin did, and he got a match to that. And he had antagonism from other people, but he found a way. Now, just think if Ben Franklin didn't do what he did with that hospital, well, we have Pennsylvania Hospital today, which is one of the finest hospitals, not just in the state, but in the nation. Now, for people who only pay part attention, can you explain the Appropriations Committee and what, what clout it has? Well, you know, one, I, I'm, I'm a little biased. It is the best committee on the entire Hill. Uh, it is the committee where, um, where when the governor presents his budget, as he will on February the 4th, once he makes that proposal, it goes to the Appropriations Committee. The Appropriations Committee has the ability of oversight. And what it does is it conducts hearings for a three-week period. You can do it in Harrisburg. I took it all 
I went to Cranberry, Elk County, wherever. But you can take it around. And what you do is you basically allow the members and the citizens to participate in that process. And they give you insight. In addition to that, all bills, all bills coming through the legislature has to stop in the Appropriation Committee for the purpose of a fiscal note. So the Appropriation Committee has the ability to evaluate any particular bill and what that bill will have impact on in terms of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Look, the budget's $27 billion. And as a result, that's $27 billion that are, that's being expended in 365 days during the year. And that act takes place every single year. To me, that's the most important responsibility we have as legislators, to be guardians of the people's money. You know, we're not ordained in these positions, we are elected in these positions, and that money there is our responsibility. So the Appropriation Committee has the oversight, the review gives its opinion on what has to happen, has to get a budget done in a certain period of time. And that committee, more than any other committee in my view, is the committee where most of the action takes place. You say in the book when you were chairman of the Appropriations Committee, people thought you were an ATM. Yes, yes, yes. I think that they thought for some reason magically that I could come up with all kinds of ideas for my, look. There's a start and there's a finish. There's a limitation. It's finite, right? It's, you don't, you know, you just can't get all you want. And I think that, unfortunately, members on both sides of the aisles just thought, you know, I could do anything. Now, there's a lot of things I did do. I will not deny that. But the fact of the matter is there's a limit to it. And I think you got to be sensible about that. you got to understand that this is the taxpayer's money. It's not our money. At the end of the day, this is something that we got to work with. And you got to have safeguards. And I talk about the safeguards. I talk about the accountability. I like to think I had the best staff that was on the Hill, was open, transparent, always making sure that every member was involved. And no matter if it was a Democratic member or a Republican member, I always had my door open for all members. Well, when you were chairman of the Appropriations Committee and your party was in the majority party, how much clout did you have? Like you, we walk, you talk about you walked into a library in, is it Elwood City? Yeah, Elwood City, Can yes. Can you tell that yes. story? Oh, basically, I was out there with a representative at that time. Um, and we, I, was just, I used to do that a lot, go out and visit neighborhoods and communities all throughout the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And there was a couple of ladies there who were, um, you know, just kind of, pulling their hair out about what can they do about this library and the need. And I went in and uh, I looked into the library. Now, remember, connect the library to the element of what my mother said about the importance of libraries, understand what libraries have meant to this state and to this nation. And, you know, they raised a very legitimate point. Now, I didn't say on the spot that there would be money available. I had to go back and see what kind of money was available. And I was able to... Um, to, to, to find some money and about half a million dollars for the purpose of helping them to upgrade that library. Now, I believe that was an asset to Elmwood City in a lot of ways, economically, right, drawing people, keeping the place together. But remember, I talked about the importance of education and democracy. Those are two elements that was extremely important with the element of making sure there's a library available for the kids in the community and what the library meant, but also the aspect about informing the citizenship about the importance of reading about history and knowing about things. And I knew that library was a part of the economic development of, of Elmwood. I'm glad I was able to do something for them. But again, with Pennsylvania taxpayers' money, it was the money of those people. It was not my money, it was their money. So 
Only thing I was doing was reinvesting money back into that community. Uh, did, how did you balance uh, the interests of a place like Elwood City versus your district back home? And did you take criticism for, oh, for either side? He's, took, he's only took, interested in Philadelphia. Or why are you get, spending the money in Elwood City and not in well, Philadelphia? Well, that's sort of like what Ben Franklin talked about when he says, you know, the, the difficulties of um, walking that line. It was very difficult. I mean, it was like no matter whatever I said, uh, fundamentally there's some people who just didn't believe what I said. And I tried to strike a balance. I tried to be fair. Now, you know, fairness is always in the eyes of the beholder of what people meant. I mean, I had 102, 103 members to deal with. And I just didn't have members from my caucus to deal with. I had Republican members to deal with. So I had to deal with both. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was my judgment, good or bad, it was my judgment and what I thought was appropriate first. And secondly, you know, at the end of the day, there were other needs. Uh, we had to deal with education, had to deal with prisons, health care, economic development. And remember, the governor is a driving force. So the way the money was divided, it was divided among five caucus, four caucuses in the governor. And that was the discretionary money. But That's you had, the WAMs? That was the WAMs. The WAMs was divided among um, the governor and the four other caucuses. But you, you had to meet your first obligation. You had to meet your debt obligations. You had to meet your education obligations. You had to meet your health care obligations. You had to meet all. So this was no more than discretionary money that was available. But it was open and it was transparent. Uh, you had to go through a process. It's not like I could write a check out. If you came to me, Brian, I, you say you need some, I couldn't write a check. They had to go through the Department of uh, Community Affairs and it had to be justified, documented. That's what it had to be. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes the press took it like it was like you just had a drawer and you could just write checks out. You couldn't do that. You know, it was a proper process that you had to go through right there. I ask you about uh, one part of your book. You talk about the 1991-1992 budget. Yes. And you say, Fred Taylor, a Democrat from Fayette County in western Pennsylvania, balked on the first roll call and voted no. I knew I needed Fred's vote to get the budget passed, so I set out to find out what it would take to move him from a no to a yes. In the end, I got him to change his vote by inserting a $500,000 appropriation to build a statue of General George Marshall in Uniontown, which is part of Fred's district. Yes. Is that what it took with, yes. with whams? Like, yeah, well, I'll do this well, for you well, and that you know, for you to get pieced together? I looked at it as, look, General Marshall was extremely significant, not just to the state, but to this country. You know, when you talk about the Marshall Plan, it was named after him and what and significant. So I believe what Fred was talking about was a legitimate issue that no one else had paid an attention to that. Now, what I always said, it starts with vision before it starts with money. Fred had a vision. Now, obviously Fred got my attention because I had a need. I wanted to pass the budget and need to get the budget, and I needed Fred's vote. So a combination of Fred's vision of the significance of what General Marshall didn't just mean to Pennsylvania but to the nation, that combination came together. And it was no more than an opportunity. So it wasn't like the money went to Fred and it was a statue of Fred. It was a statue of somebody who's extremely significant to this country today. I wish we had a Marshall plan for all urban and rural America. So he brought that to my attention. I listened to him, and I, that again is an idea making a difference, making the ideas matter. 
that's exactly what it was. That's how he brought But he used the leverage of his vote to get my attention. Now, if it was something that was wrong, then I wouldn't do it. But at the end of the day, he is an advocate for his district. He advocated for his particular district. I tell a number of stories in The Power of Money about legislators who are advocates for their districts. And sometimes governors don't see that. You know, governors are like sometimes really, you know, they up here and they look at legislators down here. But as chairman of the appropriation committee, my responsibility was to listen, to hear the member, and the member represented their constituents. And that was my job to try to respond. There are no whams anymore? No, there's not, not, that, not as you would define them today. I don't think that they are there the way they were defined in the past. Is there something lost there? Is it harder to, to hold the caucus together or to get the votes to, to well, pass I bills think if you don't have that I, kind of I've, I've said that. I think it makes it a little bit more challenging. Look, you can get some things done. We just did a transportation package last month, $2.4 billion. I think it makes it a little bit more challenging. But the thing that I think people miss is that these members, all 253 of them, Democrat, Republican, are really advocating for their constituents. This is, this is the constituents' taxpayers' money. It is not the legislators' money, it's the taxpayers' money. And we are advocates for that period of time for our constituents. May it be money, program, policy, right? Program, policy, that's what we're doing. We're advocating for them, we're fighting to ensure that people who pay income tax, business tax, corporate tax, it's Pennsylvanians. We are all reinvesting that $27 billion back into the growth and the development of the state. And unfortunately, I think this is where I said, where, where ideas doesn't matter, but the politics trumped the element of, well, this is a corrupt process. Politicians are corrupt as a result of the use of it. 99% of the members I dealt with on both sides of the aisle, in my view, did very honorable things in terms of the recommendations they made. They did not, in spite of what the press image of it was, in my view, they didn't do dishonorable things. And I describe it, and I believe at the end of the day, this was something, because when you think about it, when I talk to you about um, in Fayette County, about the need with Charlie King and Deb Representative Deborah Cooler, uh, the need of that water. As a result of that million dollars, it connected, at that time, uh, Congressman Jack Murphy was able to match. He did an earmark, and that made, now you go there in Fayette County, that 146 families now connected to water. You tell me that wasn't a good thing to do? Now, you could always have somebody who would say, well, you didn't give me a million dollars. Well, it wasn't like I was giving Representative Deborah Cooler a million dollars, it was, Charlie King, the Brownfield Community Center, that township that had a need. Again, same thing like with Fred Taylor. That's rural Pennsylvania. They have equally as much need as Pittsburgh or Scranton or Philadelphia. So I think the uniqueness that I brought to the job was I understood when it was all said and done that though we may have come over here on different boats, we're in the same boat now and that's Pennsylvania. Why are you a Democrat? I'm a Democrat because I believe that we're on the side of the people. I believe that at the end of the day that the Democrats tend to be, when I mentioned to you, Lyndon Johnson, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, Harry Truman, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, that I believe when you talk about health care, economic development, when John F. Kennedy talked about the element 
of a raising uh, uh, boat, ra a rising tide, raising a boat. All of those elements, I believe, where the Democrats have been on the side of the people who basically where you needed somebody to be a champion. When you look at uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt with the New Deal, and you look at um, Harry Truman with the Fair Deal, and you look at Lyndon Johnson with uh, the element of the Great Society, you know, that was about the element of adding some level level aspect of people participating, everybody participating in this democracy. You know, this democracy is not just built for the way it started out. You know, primarily white men who own land. That's the way it was originally done. But I believe when you think over the years, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, all those initiatives. Now, it used to be, and I'm not always that pause, it used to be that there was a Republican Party that struck a balance. And that at the end of the day, Republicans and Democrats should be working together to push this country. This is the greatest country in the world. And I don't say that through exaggeration. And ironically, Pennsylvania being the keystone state has been extremely essential. When you think about the people who have come out of Pennsylvania, Thaddeus Stevens, Benjamin Franklin, you think about uh, what took place in Philadelphia in 1776 during that hot summer, and you look at the Constitution Center, you look at the, you look at, you look at the significance of the aspect of designing a democracy and what it meant. And I think that at the end of the day, as a Democrat, that's what it's about. It's about freedom, it's about opportunity, it's about justice. Those things are extremely essential. And not where you have a situation where you are giving entitlements to people, but you're giving opportunities. My father was in the military. My grandfather was in the military. All three of my uncles was in the military. And my younger brother did 27 years in the military. So we, like anybody else, have fought for this country. And the reality of it is people should be able to partake, not guarantee. Not looking for guarantees. What I'm looking for is for opportunity. What keeps you motivated? What keeps in, uh, all these 30-plus years in, in politics instead of feeling well, I'm like not saying it hasn't been difficult. I'm not saying it's been, you know, what keeps me motivated when I keep thinking we can make a difference? Um, you know, when can affect, that was the purpose of the book. The book was like having a larger classroom. Uh, raising the consciousness of people that it's still worth to register to vote, it's still worth to participate, it's still worth running for public office, it's still worth trying to make a difference. And I think that if I can do anything to add incentives, uh, Representative Jake Wheatley from Pittsburgh is a very good example, Sherelle Parker uh, from Philadelphia is a very good example. Those are just two examples of individuals who I believe if I can, not just them or anybody else I can affect, in some way to get them to understand that it does make a difference. It does make a difference. It's not easy. It's not going to be done overnight. It's going to be a struggle. And whatever is a struggle is not the end of the world to try to make a difference in terms of your community and neighborhood. Because at the end of the day, uh, who sets the rules? You know, citizens who are elected. You know, basically when you look at the Constitution, I mean, the only thing you have to do is be a resident in a certain age, and you can run for some office. You don't necessarily have to have a PhD or a master's degree or all kinds of, you know, I ran for governor. I had fortunate enough to run for governor in 1994. Uh, first time uh, someone of an African-American uh, nature ever ran for the position. I came in second. 
Um, How old were you? I was about 40 years old when I ran for governor of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And I like to think in running I made a difference. I ran for lieutenant governor. I ran for mayor of the city of Philadelphia. And although I was not successful in the political exercise of those particular positions, I do believe I've moved the debate and the discussions on education, on public safety, on fresh food financing. I moved the debate because that's another part of your toolbox, raising the consciousness of people to get involved. So when you ask me that question about uh, passion and the aspect about what keeps driving me, what, what keeps driving me is that if I can keep convincing people for a kid like myself in 1964 standing outside of um, uh, the police district, um, saw Reverend Leon Sullivan do what he did and made a difference, then I too can make a difference. And I hope more than anything that what the book does is I hope it registers with a lot of people so we have larger discussions. You know, things are not perfect. We're not everywhere we should be. And I don't want to be with rose-colored glasses, but I know you can make a difference. Is this your first book? First book. First book has been exciting. It's a lot of work and a lot of effort, uh, a lot of dedication, as I said to you, for the last couple of years. That's kind of what I've been focused on for the last couple of years. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Representative Dwight Evans. He is the author of this book, Making Ideas Matter, My Life as a Policy Entrepreneur. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you for the time. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.